These footprints lead to the happiest motion picture in many, many, many a year. Officer, we just got married. Barefoot in the Park, the barest, rarest, unsquarest love play that ever left Broadway to find happiness on the motion picture screen. Barefoot in the Park, the fun-filled story of a typical honeymoon. It's always an uphill struggle. It's the wake up, break the rules, rock the boat, live it up comedy of the year. Why don't you fall over laughing and go barefoot in the park? Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. And I'm Drea Clark. Samantha Ellis is, I'm assuming, walking barefoot in the park as one does when you talk about Barefoot in the Park. Nice. (laughs) It's a good visual for us to have that she's not here because she's out leading wily hijinks in the city. Dressed impeccably, of course. But we are talking about 1967's Barefoot in the Park for no reason other than I wanted to talk about it. Before we get into that, just a reminder that if you do love the podcast and want to get all sorts of cool bonus stuff we just sent out, our limited edition buttons that Sam had made for us. Those are going out to all of our patrons. If you want to find out more on how to get buttons, get access to our upcoming spooky movie night and all sorts of other bonus content, including supplemental shows and interviews. You can do that over at patreon.com slash ticklish biz. All your money keeps the lights on at ticklish biz HQ. A metaphoric lights on. The figurative lights. We are going to jump into talking about Barefoot in the Park. This is directed by Gene Sachs, who in the late 60s had a string of hits. He had this, which was his first directorial feature, 1968's The Odd Couple and 1969's Cactus Flower. And then he took a bit of a break and came back and did Last of the Red Hot Lovers and the infamous 1974 version of MAME with Lucille Ball. If you have not read any stories about that version of MAME, you should. Or better yet, watch it. Because it is so badly entertaining. Of course, he followed that up in 1986 with Brighton Beach Memoirs. Did a film in 92 called A Fine Romance. And ended his career in 95 by doing the TV movie version of Bye Bye Birdie. Which I don't like. But that's a story for another time. But he was better known as an actor in a bunch of other films. He had a couple more credits than he did directing credits. This kicked off a very interesting career of authentic New York set relationship dramedies. Dramedy is the word, right, Drea? I'll accept dramedies in this instance, yes. This tells the story of Corey and Paul, played by Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, respectively. Paul is a conservative young lawyer. Corey is this wild free spirit. They get into a whirlwind romance and quickly decide to move into a New York walk-up apartment. They don't realize, though, that it is five flights, has a hole in the skylight, has no room for a bed, all of the typical hijinks that you would expect from a couple who has no money and no discernible way of living on their own. That's the plot for the entire hour and 46, and it is utterly delightful. I would give a nod in the setup of its background, of course, to Neil Simon as well. 
the Neil Simonness of Barefoot in the Park is pretty indelible. His dialogue, his approach to not just romantic characters, but the interpersonal relationships and trying to eke out every bit of flavor from any given moment. He doesn't always have a ton of stuff happening, but his dialogue is always really sharp. What he's trying to say is always really pointed. And with Gene Sachs, I always found it interesting that was it Biloxi Blues and Brighton Beach Memoirs of Neil Simon? Did he do both of those? Let me find that out. Inquiring minds want to know. There's also a quintessential New Yorkness to what Neil Simon does, which makes, as we round the corner into talking about Barefoot in the Park, Robert Redford and Jane Fonda were always really interesting casting because I think of Barefoot in the Park and Neil Simon as such New York entities. And Jane Fonda and Robert Redford are the blondest California-looking people. And I really enjoyed that juxtaposition because when this was written, Marsha Mason, not at this time, but that's a New York woman, right? So the Jane Fonda taking that on was always a fun little twist to me because it was a little unexpected. Biloxi Blues was Neil Simon as well. Okay, cool. Thank you for checking that out. This movie works on different levels, but obviously because of the dialogue, which I quote regularly. And Neil Simon had been working in television and film since the late 40s, predominantly in television. I mean, any burgeoning TV show you had through the 50s and 60s, he had a hand in. And he was also responsible for a lot of adaptations that came out. The year before this, he had written an adaptation of his own play, After the Fox, that has Victor Mature, He would also work on The Odd Couple, and Bob Fosse would adapt Sweet Charity. So Neil Simon was pretty much the writer on everybody's lips. And of course, in the 70s, he did Out of Towners, Gene Sachs' Last of the Red Hot Lovers, The Heartbreak Kid. So this really was the calm before the Neil Simon storm when he was just writing everything throughout the late 70s. But you're totally right that this is such a weird mishmash of actors at the time because the studio system by this point is all but dead and you're getting a lot of actors who were not necessarily Stella Adler method performers but there was this more naturalistic approach to their performing so you have Jane Fonda and Robert Redford Jane Fonda of course had been working in film for several years now was the daughter of Henry Fonda, but a lot of the films that she had made leading up to this, she said she hated because she didn't feel that there was a lot of nuance to them. And she was also struggling at the time with a really serious eating disorder. And then of course you have Robert Redford, who if memory serves, and I might have the story wrong, because I heard this when I saw it at TCM two years ago, Robert Redford had auditioned for the role played by Cliff Robertson in Sunday in New York which Jane Fonda did the movie version of, but he didn't get it. And so when he got this, it was almost like an apology for not getting Sunday in New York, even though this is a better movie. And I say that as somebody who adores Sunday in New York, which is practically the same movie as this, but a slight variation. It's just amazing watching the two of them together. And we'll get into their relationship in a sec, because it is so comic yet so authentic. At the same time, Robert Redford, as we know him now, 
says that this was not him at all, that this was the most challenging role he'd ever done because he did not like to play a buttoned up conservative. I like you mentioning the other play as well, because it is a funny thing to think of him trading those roles. And in general, when we talk about this, thinking of Barefoot in the Park as an adaptation from a stage play is pretty important because it's moments that really shine and also those parts that feel not even less than cinematic, but a little like eh, contrived or over the top has to do with, yeah, well, it was part of a play and they were trying to condense it. I do love that Robert Redford would buck against being a conservative. And I know what you mean by conservative, buttoned up, working guy, because it does fit him so well. He seems to, the this odds that they're at, She's essentially playing Anne-Margaret. Can we agree on that? I don't know if she's playing Anne-Margaret or just Jane Fonda as we've come to know her. Like, I feel like this just might be the most Jane Fonda-y role in 1967. We didn't know that yet. I don't want to say we as in you and I were there, but audiences at the time who had seen Jane Fonda play the prim and proper girl were not used to watching her dance around in her bra and act quirky. The liveliness was Jane Fonda. But even me, when I look at Corey Bratton, the character, what I know of Jane Fonda as a committed activist, someone with a lot of personal demons, none of that translates to this character, but that lightness does. It might be just the hairstyle that was giving me a lot of Anne-Margaret, but how she (laughs) bounces around the apartment, that funny, manic, sexual quirkiness. And I say this, I love Anne-Margaret, which is why I brought that up. I would be interested if Jane and Robert were now going to say, oh, at this time, I was 67% Corey or I was only 22% Paul because there was just a nice fit. And it might have to do with their chemistry with each other. That's one of the things you mentioned as being a standout for you, right? Oh, yeah. The chemistry between these two is just fantastic. This was the second time they'd been paired up. They originally played together the year before in a film called The Chase. If you've not seen The Chase, it is a stacked cast and it's fantastic. They're both relatively minor roles in this big ensemble cast, but they do play husband and wife. They have good chemistry in that, but not nearly to the extent that they do here. And we all know that they paired together later in The Electric Horseman. They had a new movie that came out a couple years ago. Our Souls at Night. Yes, which I have not seen. I want to. You know everything you need to know about these two considering that it's 1967, and as I said, the studio system is all but dead. The first scene is the two check into the Plaza Hotel, and you just see the newspapers stacking up outside their door. And when he comes out of the hotel room, he just looks drained of blood. That doesn't just set the tone for their relationship, that it's like highly sexual, but it also sets the tone for the movie, that these two characters are not thinking about will they or won't they they are this is a film that starts with sex and pretty much says that this is what happens after characters say i do they sleep together and they do it a lot i love that the movie just kicks the door into that taboo if you watch sunday in new york it's all about jane fonda's character being labeled a prude because she won't put out and this movie starts with that happening you see not just the sexual chemistry between Fonda and Redford, but they genuinely have this very sweet rapport with each other. Now, mind you, that could be the fact that they got married in, what, two months? 
Yeah, it's a quick turnaround. As we all know now, you're like, okay, this is a honeymoon phase. You're working with a very compressed timeline of marriage already. What makes their chemistry work is that you can understand what they see in each other. It's not just the fact that both of them are ridiculously beautiful and not made in nature, but that he is attracted to her exuberance. She is attracted to his control and his ability to be playful around her. You don't need these big lines of exposition. You see it all in their character and their performance, which just feels so natural. The chemistry between them does keep buoying things, and there's such a nice naturalism to it. Something you said sparks why this is such a fun way into a movie. This movie begins where most romantic comedies end. Most of the time, a romantic comedy ends when we go down the aisle. We get to the wedding, we see the I do's, and especially knowing, ooh, a two-month whirlwind romance, that's a movie in itself. This movie is, oh no, you saw all that, they went through the wedding, and now we see them can't wait to tear each other's clothes off, very sexual from the beginning, and then realizing the mundaneness of day-to-day, blending two lives and two personalities in this very small, very high-up space. The arcing and framework of it is really smart to allow them to dig into things. Again, speaking to the origins on in theater, the apartment itself is such a great showcase for their personalities and for all of the ups and downs of this post-honeymoon settling into real life phase because it's very small, as you mentioned, has a hole in the skylight, and it's all about their approach to what those setbacks mean and seeing Jane Fonda's character trying to stay positive and brucing the thing up, greeting people and getting all excited when her phone line's put in and seeing him being despondent and I have to get to work early in the morning and I have a case. It's a great framing device to really move us quickly from this unexpectedly sexually charged beginning into blah, real life problems. Did you think their real life problems felt real life or theatrical or a fun combination of both? I do want to throw out that I'm sure that that fifth floor walk up probably goes for about a million dollars now in New York City. You'd have to pay extra for the hole in the skylight. It'd be so expensive. (laughs) I'm sure that their neighbor, Victor Belasco, played by Charles Boyer, who lives in the attic, I'm sure his room goes for at least half of that the landlord of this fictional apartment building is not hurting for money. Watching this movie and being an adult myself, it takes a bit of a unique perspective because as a teenager, much like Corey, there's this optimism that nothing is insurmountable. She immediately starts talk up the positives to everybody telling them oh it's so cozy and it's not that big of a deal and the furniture is going to make it look all better she's always got an explanation whereas paul is the pragmatist which is there's going to be a light snow and he has to be in court and how are they going to deal with the fact that there's no heat or the fact that they can barely move in the bedroom It would have been very easy to keep it stage bound and have this be the only location and never have them leave. 
which I'm assuming in a play that would be how it is. In watching them not only interact with each other, but interact with the others that also see the apartment, you can see how if they had talked about things beforehand, this might have been mitigated. He says, this isn't the apartment that they saw. And she says, yeah, they showed you the apartment that was actually on the third floor because the other one, they, they couldn't show it. So there's this intentional question of honesty already. How can you lie to your spouse in a way that is both understanding, but also authentic? Their problems are very, very relatable because you're dealing with two people that have very different ideas of what a home is, very different ideas of what politeness is. At least for me, I don't know if it's the same for you, Drea. There are moments where you identify with one over the other, but you can always identify with both of them. Well, as you know, I always identify with the mother because that's who I played at age 14 in my first play in high school. But between Corey and Paul, you go back and forth. And that's another mark of the writing that's in place, that your sympathies are switching. Most people like to think of themselves as optimistic, able to soldier on and look at the bright side. But then when faced with someone who's just being pragmatic or realistic, you also want to think of yourself that way. It's a good audience hook that you're going back and forth which one of them is being reasonable and which one is doing the best for their relationship at any given time. The combination of their writing and their performances helps in this so much because this movie is not about a lot. Really not much happens. This couple is, has a honeymoon period that we're outside of the door from. They move into this apartment. They start having problems. There's a side story with her mother and the neighbor then they resolve those problems. It's not a like, oh, and then they found a bag of money in the middle and had to help a baby find a home. There's no big dramatic things like that. It's just the real life of stuff. And if you didn't have this balance of which one you'd be on side of, this is something that could very quickly move into a, oh, this woman is in an abusive relationship or, oh, this man married a nut job tying in the sexuality of this and the ease of which they admit that married people do enjoy having sex with each other. This being in 1967, having been written earlier and then the movie version done here, it's interesting to see how sexual politics or gender politics start to work their way through this in small ways. Corey has a lot of proto-hippie sensibility to her and in her peacekeeping in her energy and optimism but she also has a lot of very traditional i'm the woman and it's my job to make this house a home threading that needle was also important for them to do they do it well you and i are both ethel banks personally i'd like to say i'm a cory <laughs> but if i'm being honest i'm a paul but I'm also an Ethel's. I mostly would like to be a Victor Velasco in my real life, so it's all fair. Oh, yeah. of course, of course. You're totally right. You can read this movie allegorically if you really thought about it, because Corey is not necessarily a flower child in that she's burning sage and incense. She does have this free-spiritedness. It's a hippie, watered-down-through 
the white male sensibility of the time. What a nice version of a hippie would look like. Keep in mind, this is coming two years before the Manson family and a year before the big civil rights push. So it is really this fairy tale version of hippiedom. At the same time, you have Paul, who is this upwardly mobile white male conservative. And then you have Ethel, who is this straight arrow, probably baby boomer, fearful of everything woman. And then you have Velasco, who's this bon vivant. So you have all these different facets of personalities that really converge in this one location in New York. That's really telling for 1967, the year before all this stuff was happening that would end up changing what the 70s would look like. I'm sure there's something that could be written about how Neil Simon is really putting together the different facets of Americans and showing how they navigate their home. Okay, I'm going to get pretentious for a second. If you wanted to, you could say that the apartment is America. Essentially how these characters all navigate this one space and inhabit it and try to fix it. At the end of the movie, they don't fix anything. They just learn how to better live within and with the people that they are inhabiting the space with. Did that get too snooty, Drea? <laughs> no, it was right on. Although I was also waiting for you to say it's America because it seems like it's easy to get to, but then you have to climb all these steps. Ba ba bum. Come on. What makes this movie so much fun is not necessarily the pratfalls of New York living, looking at a bunch of waspy New Yorkers and laughing at the fact that they have a hole in their skylight and that it's starting to snow. They don't have any heat. More how they interact with each other because of the circumstances that they're living in. I always laugh at the introduction of Ethel Banks and Victor Velasco. If this movie had just been about Corey and Paul, it would have been fine. But it would have been like the odd couple. You need those outside characters to not only force the lovers out of their house, but into interacting with people that are different than them so that eventually the couple can clash with each other. Ethel Banks is Corey's mother. She does not do much with her life. She hangs out with Corey's aunt. She sleeps on an ironing board. <laughs> and then you have Victor Velasco, who's Charles Boyer, who lives above them. They implied it's illegal that he lives in the attic. They call him the Bluebeard of... He's not the Bluebeard of Park Avenue, something similar. This ladies' man. And he takes this shine to Corey that's not creepy. It's always done in the most respectful of terms. You're so right in pointing out that it's not creepy because it is a very hard thing. I don't think it's that his apartment is illegal. It's that he hasn't paid rent and so he has been kicked out of it and therefore his easiest way to get to it is cutting through Corey and Paul's apartment, which means that we meet this strange man we don't know and this young, beautiful woman. And the fact that there's no sense of threat there for someone who is this very happy elderly Lothario is really nice because if there had been any kind of sleaze towards her, how we read him would be so distasteful. But instead, Charles Boyer, I liked his Velasco. I know it's one of the roles that you really liked it or you really didn't, but I liked that he managed to combine this charm with a lack of threat. 
you're introduced to him. Corey comes out in just a t-shirt and underpants. And she has no problem with trying to climb up onto things and test the heat. There's no fear of anything. And you could say that that is both her naivete, but also that Victor comes with good intentions. And even in some of the scenes when they do go out on the town and she's spending time with him, there's not a romantic element to it. It's more that she is just fascinated with his way of life. That's necessary because if you had had some lecherous older guy that's trying to steal Jane Fonda away from Robert Redford, A, you need to get quite the guy because it's Robert Redford in 1967. And I don't know about you, Drea, but... Short of a miracle, I don't know anybody that could best him. Also, you want to be able to like Victor because of how his plot plays off at the end of the movie with Ethel. You want those two characters. It's that concept of if there's a gun on stage by the end, somebody has to shoot it. If you have two older actors in a movie, especially in this time, odds are they're going to end up together by the end. And so you want Ethel and Victor to get together but you can't do that if he's a lecherous creep trying to scam on her daughter. Exactly. I really like the juxtaposition that Ethel and Victor had a very similar opposites attract vibe to Corey and Paul, but with the role switched. And it's such a small, simple way to illustrate how couples are and how their stories are paralleling. It was nice because... Ethel being the conservative voice in that pairing, how she both acquiesces and succumbs to Victor quicker than Paul does, and Victor's perspective quicker than Paul does to Corey's, it then allows her to pass that on as knowledge to her daughter. Things can work and people can change and the perspectives can be opened. The whole film does such a nice job of showing in a couple different relationships, that there's so many fits and flares that happen within people wanting to find the best in someone else takes some work. It's pretty sophisticated take on that for something that's ultimately pretty light and bubbly to watch. There is so much pep to this movie. So much of the film is just unwittingly hilarious. We haven't talked about some of the humor and the lines in this movie, which, again, credit to Neil Simon, who is a genius. Once you get these two characters that show up, Ethel and Victor, the real plot of the narrative kicks in. Drea, do you remember any lines from when you played Mildred Natwick's Oscar-nominated performance at the age of 14? I'm sadly far enough away from the age of 14 that I don't. That's why I was cast. I always played old women, which will not surprise you. I played Weeza in Steel Magnolias. I played the old woman in Fiddler on the Roof. If there was a funny old lady, I played her. They're all funny, but she had a comedic relief. The comedy is both in the dialogue, which I would have to go back and find some. You might have memories of more specific lines than I do. But also in all of those small exchanges, there's an entire sequence where this elderly delivery man has to climb up the stairs. I don't think he has any dialogue. You just see him, and he's white-haired and older and a little frail, staring up at the stairs. And then you check in with him again in a minute, and he's on another flight, staring up at the more stairs. 
And his entire interaction with Jane Fonda is just him wheezing at the doorway. The man from the phone company has to explain to her that she needs to sign this thing. And it's handled so well. Neil Simon and to some extent Gene Sachs, the finding of comedy in everyday moments, how people are approaching things. Like you said, there's the great stuff of them climbing surfaces to get to their ceilings or get to the, the, help me, what's the? The, the radiator? Radiator. Oh my God, I couldn't remember the word radiator. I live in California. But the radiator is 20 feet off the ground. So there's all of this physical comedy built in as well. Do you have any of the good lines on Recall? Yeah, there are so many moments in this movie that I am absolutely in love with. A lot of my favorite moments have to do with dialogue more than anything else, although there is so much great physical comedy. Obviously, the best bit of physical comedy that I love that I laugh at every single time is Ethel's tumble down the stairs. I know I shouldn't laugh about it. I'm assuming it's a stunt coordinator. I do not believe they threw poor Mildred Natwick down the stairs. But the way that that happens, it's just both a realistically ugly fall and a feat of of magic. Because theoretically, she should be dead. It's definitely one of those movie magic moments that she kept her head on. Exactly. Mildred Natwick, she was Oscar nominated for this role. And I feel that it's because a lot of people can just relate to her sadness she's the eeyore of this movie because she shows up and she is very supportive of her daughter she tells paul that Corey is just this free spirit who believes that anything's possible but at the same time she has lived her life very isolated and confined she's coming to dinner they've invited her over Corey wants to hook her up with victor and ethel just has to explain i had to park the car three blocks away then it started to rain, so I ran the last two blocks. Then my heel got caught in a subway grate, and when I pulled my foot out, I stepped in a puddle, and then a cab went by and splashed my stockings. If the hardware store downstairs was open, I was going to buy a knife and kill myself. <laughs> that says so much, because every person who has had a bad day can relate to that idea of just when it rains, it pours, and everything bad that happens happens and that's why ethel has isolated herself so much because the few times that she does go out everything bad happens i also love paul's lines because people are really surprised when i say robert redford has expert comedic timing because not a lot of his work lends itself to comedy and here a lot of his humor is just deadpan very sarcastic and it works so well like when they go to meet Victor and they have to climb up the ladder, Ethel says, we're going up there. And he's like, yeah, that's where the Birdman lives. Or later when he's talking after they've gone out with Victor and they've eaten all this weird food, Corey is making fun of the fact that Paul's a snob and he didn't want to try it. And he says, you don't just stick a fork in a black salad. You have to play with it. I just love his deadpan approach to stuff. And it all culminates with when him and Corey are having this big argument she tells him that she knew he was drunk the other day, but he didn't act drunk. And he says, one time he got so drunk, I punched an old woman in the face. Don't tell me how to get drunk. That is the best line of the whole movie because Robert Redford's comedic timing just works so beautifully. Deadpan's the exact word for it. It's that very low-key. All of his jokes are said as if they're Shakespearean asides. They're just for the audience. 
you're in on it with him, with his delivery. I do think he has a nice comedic touch. And that's on top of the fact that he just gets to walk around in long New York trench coats, a lot of wool. That one time Drea said Army Hammer looks like he just looks good in loafers with no socks. I feel like Robert Redford is just born to walk around a lot of tweed, a lot of wool, and it just works. <laughs> he did this in Inside Daisy Clover relatively quickly back to back and two very different characters but they show his range as a performer we should talk about the fact that this movie has a fairly aimless plot once they meet victor he takes them out on the town him and Corey come back and they're very exuberant ethel and paul come back and they just throw themselves on the couch ethel says i feel like we've died and gone to heaven only we had to climb up And I can't make a fist because they drank the weird alcohol that Victor says doesn't get you drunk, but you can't make a fist for two days. It all culminates with Corey and Paul having this very heated argument about the fact that he is a stick in the mud. She calls him a stuffed shirt. It leads to Corey demanding that their relationship is not going to work out and that they need to get a divorce before their marriage licenses even come in. How do you feel about that third act turn into we're married and now we're going to get divorced? It is very abrupt. It makes sense to me that the people who would be as passionate and ridiculous as to dive into marriage after two months would also be the same couple that would find themselves demanding a divorce after a month or so. I don't think it's too much longer fits their characters and I also think it gives us like I said insight to the other version of this movie where we saw them fall in love because I very much believe that it would have been Corey to suggest them getting married in the first place I need the full lifespan happening in this one room there's definitely smarter people than I who've dug into this but there's something about Corey as the woman of the late 60s trying to hold on to her identity and having some control of her life that a lot of the women beforehand didn't. This movie in general, the approach to divorce, one of the lines I do remember Fun Ethel saying, she's telling her daughter how to keep her husband happy and then essentially ends it with, and if you do that, you'll work it out, just like two out of every ten marriages. She tells her to make him feel important every once in a while. (laughs) That's it. Make him feel important every once in a while. That phrase is such an older viewpoint of marriage. Oh, your job as wife is to make him feel important every once in a while. It goes quickly into the modern thing of it, which is, and if that doesn't happen, you can end the marriage. And that wasn't really an option for so long. And so in the contemporary phrasing of it, that was a pretty modern view of looking at what this young woman was prioritizing in terms of making a relationship work and not really being willing to, which is immature as immature as someone who would dive into marriage at the same point. But I do think speaks to women of that time trying to push past the boundaries of what was expected of them as wives and as women. And it's a really small way to nod into that. I didn't even think of that. So I'm glad you brought that up. This play was inspired by Neil Simon, his own relationship. He had married a woman named Joan Bame. He always mined his own relationships. He actually did a later play that was all about his relationship with Marcia Mason. 
what I appreciate about Neil Simon is that he's writing this play based on his own marriage, but he never demonizes either performer. You can't watch this and say, oh, Corey's totally in the wrong. They should totally divorce. Or, oh, Paul's horrible. They should totally get divorced. They are just two people who are opposite personalities who need to learn how to navigate that. There's no villains or heroes. They are just people. And I really appreciate that because oftentimes when a usually male screenwriter is writing about their own relationship, there is that attempt to come out smelling like a rose. No, I'm not bashing Arthur Miller in this episode, but (laughs) I mean, uh, just saying, Arthur didn't exactly help himself out. So I appreciate Neil Simon wanting to provide this balance. It comes through Mildred Natwick's character having to give some motherly advice. And at the same time, her relationship with Victor, she's practically concussed. Victor saves her and takes care of her while she's hurt. Corey the minute she realizes that her mother is not in her bed the next morning, starts to panic, thinking that Victor is obviously a horrible person who has, like, done something terrible to her mother. Paul tries to calm her down and make her feel better, but it just shows that idea of it's great to get into a relationship, but then once you get into the consequences of that relationship and the trust, everything changes. So Corey is a fan of Victor, until she realizes that there might actually be something serious to that relationship and she panics. That's really a unique way of entering into this idea of how trust plays out through different relationships, whether that's mother-daughter, acquaintance, romantic. I did want to mention, because I forgot to bring it up earlier, but Robert Redford, who had been completely disillusioned by acting and wasn't going to make movies, and oh my gosh, I can't even think of that because it would have broken my heart. They originally cast him first, but they didn't want Jane Fonda. They originally wanted Natalie Wood, who he had worked with before on This Property is Condemned. When Natalie Wood said that she didn't want to do it, they never considered the actual original Corey, who was Elizabeth Ashley on Broadway, but they contemplated Sandra D and Tuesday Weld, as well as Nancy Sinatra, before they ended up on Jane Fonda. Those are some names that I just can't see. Natalie Wood, we all love Natalie on this podcast, but what makes Jane work so well is that you need that free-spirited zaniness that's tempered just enough. Natalie Wood has a restrained quality to her personality that would have been at odds, or would have just been such a different take and not as much of a counterbalance to Paul. If you look at that scene after they say they're going to break up, when the phone man, Harry Pepper, shows back up, they're having this conversation where Paul asks Harry a question, and then he has to ask Corey, and they're using him as this go-between, but he starts to get paranoid that they're going to murder him. (laughs) And I don't think that would have worked with someone like Natalie. This is not the derogatory word, but there's an unhinged quality to Jane Fonda's Corey that I don't think Natalie would have tapped into. Right. If you look at something like Inside Daisy Clover, which is the movie that she made with Robert Redford after this, I've seen Natalie Wood play Zany and it's a little too broad. You need something a bit more restrained. And Tuesday Weld, Yvette Mimieux was also considered, and Sandra D. You're dealing with far younger personalities. What Jane Fonda does is... She acts young, but she doesn't look young. 
So it's not this weird child bride situation. I feel like if they had gotten Sandra D, it would have looked like Robert Redford just took some poor girl out of an orphanage and married her. And that would have added some creep level that we didn't even want. God forbid when you have Charles Boyer hitting on Sandra D, we would have gone right into creep town. Sandra D did always have spark to her at any age, but there is just something very nice about the pairing of Redford and Fonda here. They seem like equals. They have equal strength. It's part of that thing of the trading of sympathy and going back and forth. Anything else we should touch on before we close it out? Just in general, this is a great film to re-explore. It's a fun watch. It's very quick. And there's something there about relationships, the realization of things after a happy ending that I always have a real soft spot for. This movie was nominated just for one Academy Award for Mildred Natwick. This was her only Oscar nomination in her entire career, which is a shame because she's good in everything that she did. She was nominated in a year that was pretty amazing. I mean, if you really look at the nominations at the 1968 Academy Awards, in her category specifically, she was nominated alongside Catherine Ross for The Graduate, Carol Channing for Thoroughly Modern Millie, B. Richards for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Dre, do you know who won? No. Now I feel like I've been put on the spot. Who won? <laughs> the winner that year was Estelle Parsons for Bonnie and Clyde. Ah. I can't really fault that. 1968 was a game changer at the Oscars. That was the year that In the Heat of the Night won. And a Best Picture lineup that included Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate, and Dr. Doolittle. The old guard, the old studio system desperately clinging to life. Estelle Parsons is great in Bonnie and Clyde. I'm a big fan of Bonnie and Clyde. Really anybody, I think, in that Best Supporting Actress race that year who had won would have been okay with me. Can we just give it to all of them? I'd like to just go back in time and just give it to all five ladies. They all deserve it. Yes, we can, Kristen. <laughs> As Drea mentioned, this movie is fantastic. I love it. I watch it every time it's on. It used to be really hard to find on DVD, but I think it's now more widely available to purchase, and it's on a lot of streaming sites. Definitely give it a watch. Actually, watch all the Fonda-Redford pairings. All of the ones I've seen are really good, but this is the high point 1960s Robert Redford will always be like my go-to thing. Let us know your thoughts on Barefoot in the Park, Robert Redford, Jane Fonda, any of that. You can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. Before we close out, Drea, where can fans find to get in touch with you online? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And you can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can also check out my classic film site, journeysandclassicfilm.com, where I post reviews, interviews. There's actually a whole week of stuff on there this week that hasn't happened in a really long time. If you go over there, you can check out my interview with Tom Sturgis, Preston Sturgis' son. The audio will be coming up on this podcast soon. And I also did a really fun recast of Bunny Lake is Missing. If you want to know who I would have cast in a remake, you should head over there. And the podcast is also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. That's going to close us out. If you want to learn more about upcoming episodes and hear exclusive content before anyone else, then remember, support us via Patreon. We have a ton of amazing perks. All your donations go right back into making Ticklish Business the classic film podcast it is. If you become a patron right now, you can get access to these episodes 48 hours early. You get a mess of bonus pins. And you also get access to our two supplementary shows, William Bibiani 
and I look at how Hollywood talks about itself in Based on a True Podcast. We're gearing up to do our next episode on the film Sunset. And I also have a bunch of interviews coming up with the directors of the Audrey Hepburn story and Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows. That's going to be really fun to do. I also do another show with Adam Kautzer, Double Features. We're getting ready to do an episode on an as-yet-undecided film. I also have all of our TCM Film Festival audio. Go over there, patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We will be back next time kicking off our Halloween features. I'm ready for Halloween, Drea. Are you? Always. Born ready. Always. We are going to be kicking things off with a look at the 1933 James Whale-directed feature, The Invisible Man. Sorry if you thought we were talking about Frankenstein. We've already done all those. We're going to be talking about Claude Rains as The Invisible Man. That will be next time.